June 15th, 2020. Howie makes me laugh so much, as does this cute picture of Jamie with one of her squirrels in soft release. Despite these stressful times and the weeks we have both spent listening to every awful accusation made about me and Big Cat Rescue, I am happy to say that we have both kept our sense of humor. Howie suggested it's probably the only coping mechanism available to us under such an onslaught of hate. There have been so many times that some silly thing has caused us to bust out laughing to the point of tears streaming down my face and Howie short of breath. As I am having to relive all of the painful memories in my diary entries, it just reminds me all the more of how fortunate I am to love and be loved by this wonderful man. Today, Jamie met with an allergist who said she only has 58% lung function and put her on shots, new meds, and a new inhaler. She goes back in the next week for skin tests. Meanwhile, she's thinking this office trailer has always seemed too humid and maybe her bathroom is generating some mold or mildew or maybe the AC vents. Once we know for sure what she's allergic to, we can start taking more drastic measures on the buildings. I've suggested she bring one of the hospital purifiers over and put caps on the drain in her shower and tub since they are never used. Yesterday, Howie sent the following narrative. It's a work in progress, but complete enough to post here. Narrative history. Carol's history. Some of the material in this series refers to Carol's personal history, so without writing her full biography, I have tried to include pertinent details from the time she met her first husband. Carol's diary. Throughout her life, Carol has kept a diary, originally handwritten. When Don disappeared in 1997, Carol fired, fired their maid, Sherry Frost, who Carol felt had been complicit in some impropriety not relevant here. The handwritten notes from 1994 disappeared, presumably stolen by Sherry. It apparently was given to one or more of the people who oppose our advocacy. Over the years, they gave segments of it to reporters, who in some cases gave copies to Carol. As Carol received these, she transcribed them. She saw no reason to keep more mere copies of the handwritten notes. She has almost none from 1993. In the Wondery podcast originally called Over My Dead Body, but since changed to Joe Exotic Tiger King to take advantage of the awareness from the series, Joe talks about someone giving him a pile of documents, presumably including the diary to copy, and going to a print shop to do that when he was in Tampa for the original lawsuit. Author Robert Moore told us that he had been shown the diary. He would not reveal who had it because he said he had signed a document saying that he would not. However, under subpoena, he might have to. You see Joe reading it from it in the series episode 3, 609, 12, 21, 14, 59, and 1606 were the timestamps. Aside from the possible value for the lawsuit, it would be awfully nice for Carol to have her stolen original diary back. We have two suspects as to who may have the diary, Judy Watson and Susan Aronoff Bradshaw. Both are former volunteers who were here during the early days, who are exotic pet proponents, who oppose our efforts to end pet ownership. At times, over the years, they seem to have taken delight in disparaging Carol to the media. We also suspect that GC may have a copy. Don't know who that was. Many of the events and dates reported below are based on the diary, which has been hugely helpful in recreating the history. I hope it has value as what I hear referred to on TV as a contemporaneous writing. 
Since it is typed, its value could be diminished by arguing it could have been altered. However, if we can obtain the original handwritten diary or copies from any of the people above, those would validate the typed version and remove any question as to the typed versions not being accurate. Prior to meeting Don, she met Jim Jones, who she refers to as her first husband at a skating rink. Jim was six foot four, 230 pounds of solid muscle. After an argument with her mother at age 15, which Carol took to mean her mother wanted her to leave, she decided to leave home. She was living in West Virginia at the time. Jim had gone into the army, gone AWOL, and called her just as she was about to leave, so they left together. She was never officially married to Jim, but views him as a common-law husband. Carol had left her cat, Pearlie Mae, with her parents. Jim was a drug addict and a drunk. He never had a job in the two years they were together and could not even pass the written test to get a driver's license. Carol was working three jobs to support his habits, and if she did not make enough, he would beat her, once with the metal bed rail, which sometimes left her unable to work for days until she healed. After living a few places, they returned to Tampa. Carol dropped him off at his mother's house and never went back. In 1978, Carol got a job at Zayers in the automotive department working for Mike Murdoch. She had recovered Pearlie Mae from her parents, who had moved back to Tampa, and was living in the back of a Datsun pickup truck with a camper topper. Mike had an apartment on Swan Avenue. He let Carol leave Pearlie Mae at his apartment. At night, Carol would retrieve the cat, park the pickup backed against a wall so no one could open the back, and sleep in the truck. He proposed. Carol's mother liked the idea. Carol was not enthusiastic, but seeking to get back into her mother's good graces and married him April 3, 1979, at the age of 17. They first lived in the loft of Carol's parents' house at 4911 Liberty Street. When Carol was pregnant, Mike used his VA benefits to buy a house in a rough neighborhood on 48th Street. Jamie was born July 16, 1980. Carol's parents were given two and a half acres on Castleberry Road in Odessa, northwest of Tampa, by Carol's father's parents. They told Carol they wanted to build a house on it, and Carol managed all of the construction and design. When it was done, they offered it to Carol, and she and Mike and Jamie moved into it in 1983. Mike had two children by his previous marriage, Mike, Mary, and Mickey. At the time of Carol and Mike's marriage, the children lived with their mother. Carol made sure Mike paid his child support, even when other bills they had went unpaid. In 1980, when Carol was pregnant with Jamie, the children lived with Carol and Mike from 1980 to 1982 at the 48th Street house until the mother was awarded custody back. Carol recently talked to Mary, who is a nurse's aide in an assisted living facility. Mary spoke fondly of Carol, saying she still refers to her father as Mike, but Carol as her stepmother, and is aware and grateful that the only time they ever received child support was during the period where Carol was making sure Mike paid it. Her brother Mickey died in a car accident in 1999. Mike was intensely jealous. He would note the odometer reading to see how far Carol drove. If he called and she did not answer, he would come home in a fury. His physical abuse took the form of twisting Carol's arm behind her back to cause pain but leave no marks. Meeting Don. In May 1981, Carol has a diary entry in January, but it appears to have been written later and posted as January. We changed to May to avoid the confusion. Carol and Mike had a fight that Carol felt was about to result in physical abuse. She threw a potato at him and ran out the door. 
Diary Entry 5-1-1981, first mention of meeting Don recently. She was walking down Hillsborough Avenue, not the red light portion of Nebraska Avenue as portrayed in the series Tiger King. The story of Don stopping his car, asking Carol if she needed a ride and then coming back again, and offering that she could hold a gun on him was accurately portrayed, except for Vernon Yates saying it was Nebraska Avenue and showing that street sign. Carol believes Don was driving around because he and Gladys had had a fight. Note June 14th of 2020. There is a blogger and armchair detective named Ripper who has just had a field day with all of this for months. Carol yesterday went through all of his blogs. He apparently obtained from Gladys a letter Carol wrote to Gladys in 1990 containing details we did not have, and I need to go through it and incorporate it. Making a note here because I want to get this document to the attorney and don't want to delay by having to dive down this new rabbit hole. Just noting here that it indicates that on the night they met, Don had a fight with Gladys over his relationship with another woman. Apparently, Don had children by two of his mistresses, Janie and Dorothy Thompson, had packed a suitcase, his cash, and his guns, and had left. That is how he was able to give Carol pajamas to wear that night. The letter also details events in 1989, confirming that Gladys asked for the divorce then, and Don moved in with Pam before coming to Carol on Valentine's Day 1990, which is when Don told Carol Gladys had told him to leave. Diary entry is at 1990-08-20. They spent the night at a motel, but Don kept his word and did not make any sexual advances. Carol returned home to Mike the next morning. Don had asked for her phone number, called, and they sometimes talked for hours, and the affair began, seeing one seeing each other once or twice a week. That is when he told her if she needed him, she could call work and ask Anne to get Bob Martin, the name he gave Carol. After they were married, Mike moved to Tire Kingdom. Carol's father and grandfather had been selling knockdown furniture from Royal Creations. Her father gave Carol a box truck with the furniture to sell out of the back of the truck at abandoned gas stations while she was pregnant. Carol was selling knockdown furniture until after Jamie's birth. Mike then moved to a radiant gas station as the manager, and Carol went to work for him manning the gas pumps. Carol was offered a job as a manager of another of Capitano's gas stations, but instead went to work at the Boat Mart in 1984. There she was able to negotiate that she would be paid full-time, but only had to work as many hours as it took to get the job done. She automated the computerized payroll process to a point where she only had to work there a few hours a day. This left time to do the research on real estate business with Don. In the meantime, during these years, Carol had also started breeding, showing, and selling domestic show cats. She was in Orlando at a show when a woman she met there confessed to Carol that the woman was having an affair with Mike and that he was going to give her all of Carol's cats. Carol told Mike to leave and filed for divorce August of 1986. Mike took all of the ribbons and papers for the cats so Carol could no longer show or sell them and had to give most away. The divorce was finalized in 1987. Carol's mother often babysat Jamie. One day in 1986, after shopping, she was wheeling groceries and Jamie to the car in the grocery cart when a man pushed her to the ground and took Jamie. There was no way to know if it was Mike, and they could not find Jamie. The next year, when Mike had to enroll Jamie in school for first grade, Carol located her and took her back. Despite the fact that Carol had a home and a mother and a grandmother who could help care for Jamie, and Mike only had his young son to care for Jamie, 
Mike was awarded custody and Carol had to pay child support. Carol felt the affair with Don influenced the judge. In 1992, when Jamie was 12, the social worker from school told Carol they suspected Jamie might be the victim of sexual abuse. When Mike learned of the investigation, he left town and Carol resumed custody. He tried to reconnect with Jamie years later when she was in her early 20s and she was not interested. He died of heart disease in 2010. There is no evidence that Don was a millionaire when Carol met him in 1981. Joe says Don was a millionaire when Carol met him, episode 3, at the 6 minute and 13 second mark. And the series implies Carol was after his money. The media had referred to Don as a millionaire ever since his disappearance, and it was true at the time that he disappeared, but largely due to Carol's efforts. There was no evidence that it was true when Carol met him. When Carol met Don, he had a business cutting axles off trailers pulled by tractors, and selling the boxes as storage and the axles back to Great Dane. The business name was United Truck and Trailer Sales, Inc. It was formed in 1976. Perhaps it would be useful to see if we could get an IRS filing from the entity from back then to determine its profitability. Carol does have Don's social security records showing very modest earnings, but it could be argued that that was not his entire income. Exhibit 18. Don was not actively in the real estate business that made him a millionaire when Carol met him in 1984. Although he, yeah, he got that wrong. I met him in 81. Although he dabbled with low-cost properties before that, Carol did a search of the public records through 1981, Exhibit 18, initial search in just Don's name, and then did a more thorough one with variations on his name and sorted through to determine which ones were his. There are about a dozen transactions, typically for small amounts, between 1965 and 1981. Some suggest he was short of cash and had to give up the properties, but in 1979, he loaned Sheldon Wind $28,000 for a third mortgage on Sheldon's office, so he had cash then. In 1981, he owned a house he and Gladys lived in, a lot on which he later built a large house for them, the land United Truck and Trailer was on, and a parcel across the street and possibly the parcel referred to as the farm on US-92, for which he paid $40,000, and then sold a right-of-way to the county. Carroll estimates his real estate holdings in 1981 were $113,000. Don may well have been worth six figures. If so, coming from a very modest background, he would have felt he was rich. That would explain why he originally gave Carol the fake name of Bob Martin and said that he worked for a man named Don Lewis because he did not want her to know how rich he was. <laughs> Diary entry, May 1st, 81, as recounted to 14 of 94 and placed in May as read by Joe in episode 3 at the 6 minute 7 second mark. However, in retrospect, while this is what Don told her, Carol suspects the motivation was to hide his affairs by giving the name to any woman that he had a relationship with and training the girls in the office on what to do if someone called asking for that name. Carol did not learn that his real name was Don Lewis until sometime after they met when she called his office and a new office employee answered the phone and instead of Anne. But painting Don as a millionaire helps position Carol as someone who is after his money. In actual fact, it was Carol who made Don a multimillionaire. No one, including Anne McQueen, who had access to his books all those years, has ever provided any bank records or other evidence that he had more than his Axel business and these few real estate properties in 1981 when Carol met him. 
how the real estate business started and was built. One day in 1984, while standing in line at the bank, Don overheard a bank officer say he had a $20,000 loan in default that he would be glad to sell for $2,000. Don got the information, and because he could not read beyond a first grade level, asked Carol to look into it. In brief, they bought the loan with Don's funds, foreclosed, and sold the property for a substantial profit. That is what got them into the real estate business. Carol got a job at Tampa Boat Mart by teaching herself how to operate their computer. The job did not require regular hours, just that the work got done. This left time for the real estate business. Carol began going to banks, asking if they had any bad loans they wanted to sell. She spent days at a time at the courthouse, watching foreclosures and evictions, listening to how the cases were argued, and copying and studying the documents to learn how to do these herself to avoid legal fees. She taught herself how to research to find out if there were other liabilities on the properties and determine if there was equity. They also began attending tax deed sales. At that time, this was not the popular business it later became. Few people did it then. There was a newsletter-type publication called The Hot Sheet One Could Purchase that listed the properties coming up for sale. This way, bidders could try to find the properties to look at them from the outside in advance. Once they purchased a mortgage or property, they would try to work with the residents by offering reduced payments since their investment was less than the original loan. However, even residents who agreed to revised terms often at some point defaulted, requiring foreclosure or eviction. During these years between 1984 and when they were married in 1991, Carol had to, quote, stay in the background, unquote, because Don said he didn't want to rub his family's nose in their affair. Carol was fine with that and was happy to plow every dime right back into building the real estate portfolio. Carol made a point not to be seen with Don and did not go into the office. She kept her own office at home with records of what she was working on. They kept the properties in land trusts. By 1987, the office staff knew of Carol because Carol would be made the trustee of the trust so she could do the foreclosures pro se without legal fees. Carol was never involved in the general bookkeeping of Don's affairs. She just sourced and worked on the deals and dealt with the evictions and foreclosures, keeping records of what she was working on, and kept all of the books and records. Carol kept her personal expenses as low as possible during these years, driving an old Impala she paid $100 for, buying clothes at Goodwill, etc., so that she never had to take money out of the real estate business she was doing with Don, and later separately with other investors. Between 1981 and their marriage, Don and Carol's romantic relationship was on again, off again, although from 1984 on, they were partners in the real estate business continuously. They never broke up due to any argument. Don would just tell Carol that he was breaking up because he was reconciling with Gladys. Carol would have other relationships during those times when she was not seeing Don. Among them were Dr. Roy Persons, Bill Benjamin, Bill Boyd, Scott Smith, Gary Smurther, Gary Mercer, but every time Don and Gladys broke up, Carol left those relationships and went back to him exclusively. Don also in those years had an intermittent relationship with Pamela Don Enriquez, whose mother produced the hot sheet. In those years, in the mid-1980s, it was well known, at least in the courthouse, that in addition to his relationship with Carol, he also had one with Pam. Carol suspects that part of his interest was that Pam was a way to know about the properties even before the hot sheet came out. 
Pam made a point of making sure people at the courthouse knew of her relationship to make Carol uncomfortable. In hindsight, Carol wondered if some of the times Don left her to reconcile with Gladys, he might actually be living with Pam. Don told Carol he broke up with Pam when they married, and Carol never saw any evidence to the contrary, although she suspected that there was some connection. Records show that Pam married Edwin John Effinger on November 23rd of 2001. One of the people Carol had a relationship with during a hiatus from Don was a psychologist named Dr. Roy Persons. When Roy was in the process of divorce, he asked Carol to hide $90,000. She suggested he let her invest it. When he saw the returns, he encouraged other people to invest with Carol. This gave her income separate from her business with Don. One day in 1987 or 1988, during a period when she was with Roy, she purchased a carpet for him and met a salesman named Bill Benjamin and became friendly. The carpet was purchased from a buying club where members were rewarded for bringing in new members. One night, Bill called Carol saying he was drunk and could not drive and asked if she would pick him up at Feather Sound. She did, but driving away, she realized she was very low on gas. She made a U-turn to get gas, but the gas ran out. Bill got behind the car at the driver's side rear of the car to push, and a woman who admitted she fell asleep at the wheel plowed into the back of the Volkswagen Rabbit, severely injuring them both. Carol woke in the hospital in a room next to Bill. He had PTSD, and if she tried to leave the room, he started screaming at the top of his lungs. Carol had head injuries and amnesia and did not, who she, did not know who she was. After Carol had been missing for days, Anne started calling hospitals and found her. Carol did not know who she was or that she had a husband and daughter. Gradually stimulated by work and family photos and Jamie, her memory returned. At that time, she was living on Lemon Street in a house that she was fixing up to make rentable. It was her practice to move into houses they bought and live there during renovations. Fortunately, she had very good paperwork. So while she could not remember the transactions, if someone called, she could refresh herself with the paperwork. She felt responsible for Bill and asked him what he dreamed of doing. He said he was a horse trainer, wanted to get back into the business. He convinced her that trading racehorses was a profitable business, and Carol convinced Don to finance her going into business with him by putting up $200,000. That did not go well. Carol paid Don back out of the money she made investing with funds from Roy and a few other people. Don, through Anne and the office, controlled all the money. Carol trusted that her share of what they were building was safe with them. But during the years Carol and Don were partners before their marriage, Don also used money that came from the business he and Carol were doing to buy properties separately with Pam Enriquez, who was familiar with the business due to her involvement with their mother's hot sheet business. Sometimes Carol would bring Don a transaction she liked and was surprised when he would decline. Occasionally, later, she would find that he had purchased it with Pam. Other properties purchased with Pam were properties Carol had no knowledge of, but Pam was a single mother of two with no money of her own, so the only source of funds had to be from Don and Carol's investments. At the time Don and Carol married, half of the $5 million in properties Carol thought she had built up was in Pam's name and Pam kept those after the marriage. So Don and Carol only had $2.5 million together. With no way to recover these losses, Carol just resolved to build the business back up. The Galta Trust, the Guardian Angel Land Trust Agreement, existed in various forms prior to Carol and Don's marriage. 
About six months after they married, they modified Galta and formed a new trust called PRSL Antrust, the first initials of Don's children's last names. There were properties purchased with the funds that were generated from the work Carol was doing that were purchased and held in Don's name, but did not require active work from Carol, like clearing titles with quiet title suits, evictions, foreclosures, municipal liens, or working to reduce the tax assessed values. Those properties Carol did not actively have to work on were put in the PRSL with Don's children and beneficiaries of the trust. The ones Carol had been involved in were put in the Galta Trust with Carol as the beneficiary. Galta also included all of Don's personal assets that were not real estate. Don's will simply said everything would pass as stated in the trust. After that, when properties were purchased, some were formerly put into Galta, others that Carol Heat others that Carol and he viewed as their joint property were held in his name. In May 1997, Anne asked Carol to do some title search related to Anne's mother, whose last name was Riggs. As Carol was doing this, she noticed a property in the name of E.A. Riggs with a legal description or street address she recognized. Searching further, she found over $400,000 in properties that should belong to Carol and Don that were in Anne's maiden name. When she confronted Anne, Anne said Don told her to put, her, put them in her name. Don denied this and told her to sign them back over to him. Anne procrastinated through the time that Don disappeared, and Carol went through years of litigation afterwards to get what she could of them back from Anne. Don and Gladys divorced in subsequent lawsuit by Gladys. Don and Gladys divorced in 1990 with what apparently was an out-of-court settlement, prepared by Don's attorney, Sheldon Wind. We can find no court records and have conflicting information about what county it may have been recorded in. In the 1996 depositions for the later case, there was a reference to attorney Sheldon Wind driving Gladys to Sumter County. However, Hillsborough County Instrument BK428PG348SearchQuarry.com lists the Gladys slash Don divorce as being in Pasco County, but Carol has tried a few times to find it there without success. Gladys received $1 million in real estate properties, along with a Mercedes, a Chrysler, jewelry, $18,000 in silver, $20,000 in gold, and $20,000 in cash. This detail comes from Carol's diary notes from August 16th of 1996, from having read the depositions in the 1995-96 lawsuit described below. In 1995, Gladys sued Don, claiming she had been misled about the amount of his assets. Gail Porter was Don's attorney. Ron Reed represented Gladys. The case is Cross v. Lewis, 95-DR-005258. There are depositions of both Gladys and Sheldon Wynn Esquire that contain conflicting testimony that may reflect poorly on Gladys' truthfulness and credibility. Carol has a few pages of notes in her 1996 diary from reading the depositions. Carol's diary entry from December 31, 1997, describes it this way. Gladys Lewis Cross filed a lawsuit against Don, saying that he had always kept her in the dark and that he wouldn't let her have her own attorney in the divorce and that she was treated unfairly in the divorce and wanted another million. She got the daughters, Donna Pettis, Gail Rathbone, and Linda Sanchez, to testify that they were threatened by their dad if they revealed to their mother how much he was really worth, which at the time was about $3 million. And Anne refused to admit that she was there 
when Don told them to let Gladys Lewis Cross pick out the best of his investments. In the depositions, Gladys said that she asked Don for a divorce on November 13, 1989. When Don moved in with Carol at Smitter Road on February 14, 1990, he told Carol that Gladys had asked for a divorce that day. Carol suspects that Gladys did throw Don out in November, and he first moved in with Pam, likely promising Pam that he was done with Carol, and Pam found out that was not true and threw him out on Valentine's Day that he moved in with Carol. There are conflicting stories and statements about why Gladys asked for the 1990 divorce. Don told Carol the reason Gladys said she wanted a divorce was that Don had slept with her 15-year-old niece, and it was just too embarrassing to be married to him now that he had brought that shame into her own family. He also said Gladys told him the reason she wanted a quick divorce and suggested a million dollars as an agreed settlement was that she wanted to marry Norman Cross, a man she knew from church. She married Mr. Cross on March 2, 1991, exactly one year after the divorce. The 1996 deposition refers to Sheldon Wynn driving her up to Sumter County, presumably to finalize the divorce outside of Hillsborough County to make it less public to the family. We do not know why that would be the case unless some document mentioned the 15-year-old. In the 1996 deposition from Carol's diary notes after reading it, Gladys said she asked for a divorce because she found out about Don having two mistresses and that he had slept with her 15-year-old niece. The info sheet on the case says file destroyed on June 10th of 2008, Exhibit 16. Apparently Gladys, perhaps with the help of her daughters, managed to lose or spend this large settlement. Donna's previous profession was as a manicurist. Don told Carol that Gladys decided to let Donna invest the money in the stock market, perhaps day trading, and lost it. Hence the 1996 suit asking for more. Given how the Lewises cry poverty in the series, it seems like asking what happened to this large sum would be useful. Don expected Donna and Linda would support their mother in that lawsuit, but expected Gail and Anne to testify on his behalf. Don felt they had betrayed him and lied for her, and wanted Carol to remove them as beneficiaries of the PRSL Trust. Carol did not remove them, thinking he might get over it and reconsider at some point. In the letter to detectives on October 21, 1997, Carol refers to Don having paid Gladys $50,000 to settle the 1995 suit, far from the $1 million Gladys was seeking, much of which would likely have gone to attorney's fees. Based on that settlement, it would appear that the deposition showed the suit had little merit. The notes in Carol's diary, describing what she read in those depositions, suggested that if we could obtain those depositions, they might show Gladys making conflicting statements that would help discredit her. While the info sheet says they were destroyed, we don't know if there may be some digital evidence in court record storage somewhere or elsewhere. Despite Anne refusing to confirm that Don had instructed her to pick out the best $1 million of the best properties for Gladys in 1990, Don continued his business relationship with Anne. Apparently, he either forgave her for not siding with him, accepted that she did not remember, or felt she was too critical to the business to part ways with. This is in contrast to his attitude about the daughters, who he wanted nothing to do with after that. Don's divorce was finalized on March 1st of 1990. Carol and Don were married 19 months later, on October 10, 1991. During his marriage to Carol, 
Don continued to do business with Pam, but swore that they were only business partners. Around 1995, Don got into some kind of trouble involving accusations of racketeering that involved Pam and a man named Richard Perez. Carol does not know any details except that Don told her he had, paid, he had to pay Pam $1 million not to testify against him. Don told Carol he wanted to kill Richard Perez. Starting in the mid-1996, Don began going to Costa Rica regularly, particularly during the time when Carol was menstruating and not available to him sexually. December 5, 1996 was the first time Carol had heard anything about the possibility of girlfriends in Costa Rica. Don had partners in the triplex property, and one of them, Bertha, sent a fax accusing Don of stealing from her and mentioning his girlfriends, Exhibit 36. Carol was not sure if she was telling the truth or just trying to make trouble. Carol was suspicious because he was always taking ladies' clothing there to trade and sell, but the clothes he was taking there were from yard sales and had little value. His history would suggest he would not have been faithful, but he could be very charming and convincing, and Carol believed him, or chose to believe him. During their marriage, Carol believed, or chose to believe, that Don was faithful, despite his history and her suspicions about Costa Rica. After Don's disappearance, women called Carol, saying they were mothers to Don's illegitimate children. But Don had a vasectomy in the early 80s, so based on their kid's date of birth, Carol knew they were lying. There was also a blonde who worked at the courthouse, who apparently Don was seeing unbeknownst to Carol. The police had quoted somewhere someone... The police had been quoted somewhere saying Don was seeing a blonde bombshell that Carol didn't know about. After Don disappeared, Carol was at the courthouse, and per her diary, quote, a blonde bombshell who worked at the courthouse sees me shortly after Don's disappearance and has a total mental collapse, hanging on to me in the hall and crying uncontrollably over Don being gone, unquote. In hindsight, Carol suspects that is the person the police had been referring to. Don did have children by the woman named Janie, who was mentioned above, as the cause of one of the attempts Don told Carol that Gladys had made on his life. Gladys and the kids knew about Janie and her children. In the 1996 depositions, Gladys talked about not being able to go to the office because Don had Janie working there, and during the conservatorship, the daughters asked Carol to help make sure that none of the illegitimate children got any of the estate. Sanctuary started. Some of the properties they bought were vacant land. It was their practice to attend exotic animal auctions and purchase llamas to put on some of those properties. The llamas would be in a the llamas would in effect mow the grass and green the llamas would in effect mow the grass and earn the green belt reduced reducing real estate taxes. At one auction in 1992, there was a young bobcat being auctioned. The man next to Carol started bidding. Carol had done some rehab work with the injured bobcats back in her domestic cat showing days. Thinking he wanted it as a pet, she cautioned that it would, quote, tear his face off, unquote. He said that he was a taxidermist and was going to club it in the parking lot and make a dent ornament out of it. Carol outbid him and named her Winsong. We can discuss at more length, but in brief, in 1993, they decided Winsong needed a buddy, ended up at a fur farm in Minnesota, bought all 56 bobcat kittens to keep them from being slaughtered for their fur, 
brought them home to the Riverwood house and began building cages on the Easy Street property and moved to a house there. They bought out two fur farms. In the early years, they did purchase cats, have people come to stay in cabins with young cats, i.e. they were like the places we today oppose. Carol realized this was not conservation and wanted to stop breeding. So when Don was away, she would neuter cats. After he disappeared, there was no more intentional breeding, a few accidental births, and Carol became a leading advocate for not breeding cats for life in a cage. Life insurance policy. There is a policy document dated 42894 showing 1.25 million. It lists as beneficiaries Anne, five fiftieths, Carol, eight fiftieths, Don's children and grandchildren, 37 fiftieths, and that was before the 1995-96 lawsuit where the daughters testified for their mother. I have not waded through this file and not sure it will help, but here's my understanding. In April 1997, Don and Ann filed with the insurance company to change the beneficiaries of the policy. Instead of listing beneficiaries, the policy was to refer to the beneficiaries as would be designated in a trust that was to be set up. In that trust, supposedly, Ann was given authority to determine if the daughters would receive anything from the policy. Carol's diary from April 23, 1997, indicates Don told Carol that he revised his insurance policy with Ann McQueen's help. He said the first $250,000 comes to Carol, and then it pays off the $200,000 mortgage to Gladys Lewis Cross on the Easy Street property, and then pays off Mr. Baker's $100,000, and then pays Roy Dawson's $130,000. If any of these are already paid off, then that portion goes to Wildlife on Easy Street, Inc., Ann told Carol the reason for this change was that Don was wanting to cut his children out from the policy after their unfavorable testimony in the 1996 Gladys suit, but Ann did not feel it was right. Carol had no problem with that logic. It was the same logic that caused Carol to not remove them from the PRSL trust when Don told her to, i.e., she felt they were his children and should get some of his estate. What Ann seems to have told Don was the opposite, i.e., that the trust designated by the policy would give Anne the ability to designate what the daughters got, so if he changed his mind about them before he passed away, she could designate the funds for them without having to change the policy again. But the status quo was nothing going to them. There was an acknowledgement from Prudential on May 30th of 1997, confirming that the proceeds would go to Anne and Carol as trustees, Exhibit 37. The catch here is what appears to be the original application for the policy, Exhibit 38, lists Anne as the owner of the policy. Anne never set up the trust referred to in the revised beneficiary designation. It is highly unlikely that this was an oversight. The belief is that Anne's thinking was that there, if there is no trust, then she as owner would have total control. There are letters from Carol's attorney to Provincial advising them that there was no trust, there was a dispute over the beneficiary, and not to act until it was resolved. As part of the conservatorship litigation, a constructive trust agreement was belatedly created and dated as of April 24, 1997, per the policy designation based on the prior designations. It calls for Anne to get $200,000, Carol to get $250,000, Tiffany $25,000, that was Don's son, Danny Lewis's daughter, $400,000 to be split between the daughters and their children, eight people, $375,000 to amounts owed to Gladys, $200,000, Baker $75,000, Dawson $100,000, 
with the residual to go to Wildlife on Easy Street, now known as Big Cat Rescue, and providing that if any of these loans were paid off sooner, the funds would become part of the residual to Wildlife on Easy Street. Then the stipulation document that ended the conservation then the stipulation document that ended the conservatorship on August 28th of 1998 changed the $400,000 that the trust said went to the daughters and their children to have it only go to the daughters and altered the amount of the loans from $400,000 to $375,000. The bottom line here is that it appears that in addition to the properties that Anne had in her name, it looked like she was trying to cheat everyone out of the policy proceeds or at a minimum dictate who got what, which would give her leverage to control the daughters, in our opinion. Don's mental condition and behavioral changes. On September 22nd, 1988, Don had his third and last plane crash in the panhandle, trying to outrun Hurricane Helena. He hit some power lines while trying to land at a crop duster strip. He walked away from it, but was seriously injured. He spent weeks in intensive care. They put a titanium plate in his head. Carol views that as the beginning of a turning point in his behavior, which deteriorated over time. Although Don's ability to read and write was limited, he could do math in his head, like calculate 18% interest. And even after the crash, he could navigate around and knew where he was and how to get home. Carol has no relevant diary entries from 1993. Through 1994, Don was generally easy to get along with, except for Carol's birthdays and Christmas when he was difficult. Carol notes this in her diary and speculates that he was so cheap that perhaps it was his way to avoid buying gifts, which Carol was not interested in anyway. Things changed in 1994 and deteriorated more rapidly through 1997. Physically, he started occasionally Physically, he started having occasional debilitating headaches that made him feel sick, including vomiting and not being able to get out of bed. He had sudden mood swings and became angry for no apparent reason. Carol found if she could distract his attention from whatever it was he seemed angry about, usually the anger would pass. For example, Don would get angry at night for no reason over some alleged reason, scream occasionally, threaten divorce. The very first the first diary reference to divorce was in January of 1996 and locked Carol out of the bedroom. The next morning, he would come out as friendly as could be in suggesting they go out for pancakes like nothing had happened. There was no disagreement or argument leading up to these rages. He would just suddenly go into a rage. At the sanctuary, he occasionally came onto property and just started cutting a cage apart, even while it still had a cat in it, and Carol would have to distract him to some cage that was unoccupied. Carol's diary, later referring back to this time frame, describes increasingly bizarre behavior. Quote, Don keeps doing weird things, like bringing a homeless man home with him to stay in our house, and he keeps getting lost while dumpster diving. He gets stuck in a dumpster and calls crying because he doesn't know where he is. He refuses to use public restrooms and starts defecating outside, unquote. Notation about the public restrooms is in the Diary Post, June 3rd, 1997. By 1997, he could no longer navigate without getting lost. Alzheimer's was not a household word like it is today, or at least Carol had never heard of it. But a volunteer named Rich Reed, who's now deceased, who had a relative diagnosed with it, mentioned to Carol that Don's behavior seemed to indicate it. Per diary entry, January 23rd, 1997, 
Carol bought every book she could find on Alzheimer's and felt his behavior fit what she had read. On June 12, 1997, out of the blue while he was brushing his teeth, Don told Carol that his plan that day was to poison the cats with antifreeze. Carol had previously called the local Alzheimer's chapter and had gotten a referral to a specialist, Dr. Gold. Don had been resisting seeing the doctor. Don's statement about the antifreeze shocked and scared Carol, and she realized she had to force him to see a doctor. They got into an argument in which she basically had to threaten him with the Baker Act to get him to agree. Here is her diary entry from June 12th of 97. After a while, I realized he could not be reasoned with and told him that his actions have been so bizarre that I would have him Baker acted if he did not go on his own accord to be tested. He said, if you do that, you will only live long enough to regret it. He said he would poison all of the cats with antifreeze. I asked why he would inflict such a painful death on an innocent animal, and he said it would be worth it to him just to see me suffer. I told him to get off the property and not come back. I told him that if he did not go, I would have him arrested. I told him that he could not come back until after he had been tested for Alzheimer's disease. And if it proved that he was sane and just evil, then he could have his divorce. But if the test concluded that he was ill, then I would take care of him until he died. Don asked what it was about him that made me think he was sick. He said he was sincere, so I sat down with him and showed him all of the symptoms and pointed out all of his similarities. He finally agreed to go be tested. I called all day, but no one ever returned my call about having him evaluated. The next day, he said he had Anne McQueen check with our insurance carrier, and she had found a doctor for him to go to. He said he wanted to go to the doctor she found first, and if that doctor said there was nothing wrong with him, then he would agree to go to the doctor I had been referred to by the Tampa Bay Alzheimer's chapter. I asked if the doctor that Anne McQueen had chosen was a specialist, and Don said that he was a, quote, head doctor, unquote, but he didn't know who or where or when his appointment was. And here is an entry from June 2nd, 1997, about his refusal to use public restrooms. Don left for Costa Rica today, and for the first time, I really hated to see him go. All that I have been reading tells me how sad and scary his life has become. I started looking back at his increasingly odd behaviors. At some point in time, he began avoiding public restrooms. He would tell me on many occasions, at some point in time, he began avoiding public restrooms. He would tell me on many occasions that he had, quote, a pain in his tummy, unquote, and he had to go so quickly that he had to pull the car over and run into the woods or behind a building. Once he even said that he jumped into a dumpster in a parking lot to relieve himself. It wasn't until he would do this sort of thing when I was with him that I realized he would pass by a public restroom and opt for some open area to soil. There is another entry from June 3rd, 1997, describing Don referring to everyone around him as Linda, presumably referring to his daughter, but not sure. For instance, saying that he and Linda had done some work on a cage when it was actually Carol's father, Vern. Many other entries reveal Don being angry and mentally abusive to Carol in irrational and very upsetting ways. For example, see Exhibit 31, dates July 9th, 1994, and December 29th, 1994, that Joe reads from in Episode 3. The doctor Anne scheduled was named Blasini. On June 20th, 1997, Carol took Don to him. 
but his business card says he's an internist. Bolsini then referred them upstairs to Dr. West in the same building. He was not there, so Don saw another psychiatrist, Dr. Russell. There are documents from this visit showing a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and altered mental status and another order for blood tests and an MRI. The scrawl of a signature on the St. Joseph's MRI order appears to be Placini. Insurance invoices show Don had blood tests done that same day and a brain MRI done three days later, Exhibit 12. Carol set up a new appointment for Don to see Dr. Gold for late August, which was the first available date. We do not know the exact date, but Don disappeared before the appointment. The evidence list in the September 30, 1997 EST letter to Lingo, Exhibit 29, indicates that Don went back to see Dr. Russell on June 25, 1997, but told Carol that he forgot to go. Same evidence list says Don was supposed to return to see Dr. Blasini on July 11, 1997, but told Carol he didn't, and notation says Carol had not gotten a call back from Dr. Blasini. A number of people in the series claimed Don's mental condition was not deteriorating, including Anne. List and cite. But Anne was involved in getting him tested, insisting on sending him to her doctor instead of the one Carol had found. The diagnosis and prescription for a brain MRI and Anne's participation in Don seeing a psychiatrist strongly suggests something was wrong contrary to these statements, Exhibit 12. In an effort to corroborate Don's behavior, Howard talked to J.D. Allen on June 12th, 19, June 12th, 2020. Nope. <laughs> June 12th, 20. I don't know what I mean by that. Well, I guess it'd be 2020 because um, where am I now? June 15th. Okay. J.D. was Jamie's boyfriend in the mid-1990s, in his mid-teens, and spent a lot of time helping out at the sanctuary. He gave a few examples of Don's behavior that suggest a mental issue, although at the time, young J.D. just attributed it to Don being an old man. He said Don would tell him and someone else to go do some project, and then later throw a fit, yelling at them for doing it. When they would point out that Don had specifically told them to do it hours earlier, he would deny it. He recalls a time where Don was on board with them building a pavilion in front of Shere Khan, the tiger's cage. They had ordered the lumber and had set it out there that Don could see. Don left the property and they began construction. Hours later, Don returned and threw a fit, having no apparent knowledge of having approved this hours earlier, and made them tear it down and pile the lumber somewhere without any reason. Carol's diary also describes this incident, and Jamie would likely remember it as well. To do, ask Kenny if he has any recollection of his behavior that could provide additional support to what Carol describes. Don's attorney in Costa Rica did not comment on his mental condi condition directly, but did comment on his lack of business sense. In a letter to detectives on August 21, 1999, Carol says she just got back from Costa Rica and reports a conversation she had with attorney Roger Peterson. She felt that previously he may have felt obligated to limit his comments about Don due to Don being his client, but on this visit he opened up saying that Don was keeping very bad company and had no business sense. Peterson said Don would have lost everything he invested there if Peterson had not been looking out for him, Exhibit 29. Aside from the mental condition, it is consistent with Carol's statements about Don's business competence and Carol having been the one who built the business. Restraining Order Whether Don told Anne to give it to the police or not, 
the application itself on its face, probably the most damaging and compelling piece of circumstantial evidence influencing viewers. First, note that this is the same day when first thing in the morning, Carol and Don did have an argument, or at least a very strained conversation, about his, er his erratic behavior with Carol having to threaten to Baker Act him if he would not see a doctor. During the months leading up to this, we believe Anne was taking advantage of Don's diminishing mental capacities by using Don and Carol's funds to purchase properties in her maiden name, basically embezzling. Anne was resisting Carol's efforts to have Don see an Alzheimer's specialist, instead convincing him first to see her internist, which made no sense other than to delay getting him diagnosed and whatever treatment there might be. Wendell was also taking advantage of Don's mental condition. As Don deteriorated mentally, he was increasingly bringing home worthless junk. He would go to yard sales at the end of the day and load up all of the junk that did not sell and had set out on the street as trash or free and bring it to Easy Street. He was turning the place into a junkyard. The sanctuary was receiving citations from the county about the junk. When Don was in Costa Rica, Carol would have the junk hauled away. Wendell had no love for Carol because Carol was trying to stop Wendell from taking advantage of Don's mental deterioration. Don had given Wendell and Sheldon two checks for $60,000 and $70,000 each without any security that Carol was trying to make them pay back. Carol believes that when Don was in Costa Rica in early June, Wendell told Don she was moving the junk, and Don asked Wendell to call the sheriff and ask them to stop her, and Wendell was told that it would require a, a restraining order. See Diary Entry, June 9, 1997. We believe Wendell was also regularly stealing equipment belonging to Don. The one documented case which happened even after Don's appearance was a Brockway dump truck Wendell stole, claiming Don had given it to him. And Carol ended up having to file a police report to retrieve. The $17,000 Don referred to in the application for the restraining order might have been items Wendell was telling Don belonged to him and might have been used by Wendell as the basis for him having standing to call the sheriff about Carol removing the junk. Carol believes this is why Don sought the restraining order, i.e. stop Carol from removing his junk by having her removed from the property. At some point in Don's behavior, when he was threatening to harm the cats as leverage to get Carol not to take away junk, Carol had made an inquiry to the sheriff about what it took to obtain a restraining order and was told that Don harming the cats was not sufficient. He had to have threatened her. Presumably, when Don inquired about what it took to obtain one, he was told the same thing and would have had no problem lying on the form. Carol suspects that Anne or Wendell went with him to the courthouse and guided his filling out the form. Gail makes a good point to the extent that it was unlike Don to navigate his way through filing this form with the court alone. Note that the rambling application early on that Don does mention Carol having junkmen remove items from the sanctuary. On its face, the restraining order appears damning, and unfortunately, there is no way to prove what Carol believes is the explanation for it above. She has a recollection of Anne at some point actually telling Carol that she was correct about it, but we cannot find a contemporaneous reference to that in the diary, only a retrospective mention written on April 28th of 2013 in a writing to volunteers. Here is that entry. Don Lewis used to bring home everything he could buy, trucks, boats, planes, baby strollers, clothing, everything he saw at the yard sale, and treasures he would find in dumpsters. He covered the top of this 40 acres with his hoarding. 
He went to Costa Rica once a month, and every time he was gone, I was hauling out dumpster loads of the junk he brought home. The restraining order he took out against me was in an effort to stop me from hauling off all of his, quote, good stuff, unquote, if he got a call while in Costa Rica from someone ratting me out. His secretary told me about the restraining order and that this was why he did it after his disappearance in 1997. We never fought, so I didn't have any idea he had done such a crazy thing. It has taken 15 years, but we have almost eliminated all of the junk. That was written on April 28, 2013 to the volunteers. It is also possible that the argument that morning about seeing the Alzheimer's doctor, where Carol threatened him with the Baker Act, triggered it or was a contributing factor. Carol never threatened him with physical violence, but given his mental state and ability to be manipulated, it would not be illogical if he reported the Baker Act threat to Ann or Wendell that they could use that opportunity to urge him to try and get Carol removed from the picture. The one slight positive aspect of this document is that it shows Don's very limited writing skills and supports Carol's argument that Don could not have handled complex real estate transaction paperwork alone, i.e. he could not have built the real estate business without her. Don's disappearance, the weekend before the disappearance. Kenny Farr says the last time he saw Don, Don told him, quote, Kenny, if I can pull this off, it will be the slickest thing I ever did in my life, unquote. Most likely, that would have been Friday, August 15th, since Kenny did not work on the weekend. Carol's letter to detectives, dated August 21st, 1999, says the second employee also heard this. Exhibit 29. Per diary entry, April or August 19th, 1997, on Saturday night, August 16th, 1997, Carol overheard Don telling Wendell that the for sale signs for the 26 lots in a Pasco mobile home park would be delivered Monday morning. Wendell and Sheldon Wind were partners in some transactions. The signs ended up in Sheldon's office. It was not clear how they got there. Don had indicated he was planning to send a barge with cars and other items to Costa Rica to sell on Tuesday, August, why do I keep saying April? August 19, 1997. He had done this before at least once, but Carol was not sure what the process was. He had told Carol he was planning to fill the Iveco box truck with items to take and drive to the truck in Miami to put it on the barge with the cars. Carol does not know how the cars got there. She believes in the past he had flown to Costa Rica to meet the barge, but is not sure. There is a diary entry on August 11, 1996, written days later, describing that week about Don losing the previous shipment of cars and trucks to theft. Don was gone for Costa Rica when I arrived on August 14, 1996. He called that night and said that he could not locate the cars he had shipped down there illegally, nor the man who said he would take care of everything if Don would go ahead and title the cars to him. I know he paid $10,000 for just one of the trucks he sent down, and naturally he will lose it all trying to cheat the government. There is reference to Carol in Carol Baskin notes to advising the detectives that there was a credit card receipt for tickets to Costa Rica on the 31st. This was 1997, so that thing I just read was 96, which is confusing because it's like the same month, but now we're back into 97. Ann said in the series he was planning to fly out of Miami, so perhaps he was planning to stay in Miami and then fly to Costa Rica or return to Tampa and go back to Miami. Sunday, August 17th, 1997, Carol observed Don busy getting 
together items like bicycles, hospital beds per the diary, used clothing, shoes, children's toys, used microwaves, etc. that he was planning to put in the Iveco truck he was going to drive to Miami Tuesday to put on the barge he was sending out of Miami to Costa Rica. Carol did not see him around the house when it was time to go to church that night, but he could have been out on the property or left for a time. Don was home when Carol got back from church. Wendell says the last time he saw Don, Don told him of his intentions to divorce Carol. It is unclear when that was. Carol did not see Wendell at Easy Street on Sunday, but Don could have seen Wendell in the hours before and during church when Carol did not know where he was. Sunday night at 11 p.m., Carol left the house to go to Albertson's at Hillsborough Avenue in Sheldon, six miles away. She did not leave the house at 3 a.m., as the detective suggested, and expressed suspicion about. She believes she was looking for the rehydration formula Pedialyte to add to the kitten's milk. She thought Albertson's was open 24 hours. At the time, her car was an old junker they had $600 in. As she approached Albertson's, the car overheated and died in the parking lot. It would not restart. Carol does not recall if Albertson's was open, but apparently she did not purchase anything. After giving it time to cool for some time, the car would not restart, so she started to walk home. On the way, almost five miles north of the Albertsons, she saw the flashing lights of sheriff's deputies' cars on Westwind Drive and heard her brother's voice over the patrol car loudspeaker. Her brother was a deputy and one of the cars was his. He arranged for another deputy to drive her the remaining 1.7 miles home. That ride is what happened at 3 a.m. that caused the detective to refer to 3 a.m. When she got home, Don insisted they go retrieve the car. They brought water, filled the radiator, and it started. The next day, Monday, she drove downtown for some court action, and the car overheated and stopped at a ramp. The mechanic at the gas station at the bottom of the ramp said it was not worth repairing. The next morning, Monday, August 18, 1997, Don woke Carol briefly at dawn after only a few hours of sleep to tell her to make sure that Kenny had the Iveco ready for the trip to Miami the next morning. He left the house, she went back to sleep, and that was the last time she saw him. Monday morning, Carol drove downtown to the courthouse, and on the way back, the car died, and the mechanic told her it was not worth fixing. She took a taxi as far as the cash she had on her would take her and walked the rest of the way home. When she arrived home midday, Anne was on the phone with Kenny, talking about asking about Don. Carol's long diary entry on Tuesday, August 19, 97, details having talked to Anne on Monday, looking for Don on Monday night, but continuing not to be particularly concerned since he often did not come home. Anne calling rather frantic Tuesday morning and Carol telling her she would file a police report, continued efforts to look at places Don might be, and the officer coming out to take the missing person report. It is worth reading through that diary entry in full, Exhibit 31. Carol does not recall the conversation where Anne claims Carol asked, if she should call the police, and Anne supposedly says, quote, duh, you think, unquote. Anne claims in the series that it was unusual for her not to be able to reach Dawn. See five diary entries, Exhibit 39, as examples. However, Carol's diary indicates numerous times where Carol, and sometimes Anne, had not heard from Dawn, Exhibit 39. Given the history of Dawn's being unreachable for days at a time, Carol was baffled that Anne was so concerned only a few hours after Carol had seen him. Assets at time of disappearance. Carol had to sort through massive amounts of files to organize the assets. They fell into the following categories. Asset category. 
Don Lewis, or DL, those were Don's assets that were not held in one of the trust. Costa Rica, loans and properties purchased by Don, mostly without proper paperwork. Bagasses Farm was sold for $76,000 after the conservatorship letter to Peterson on December 28, 1997, says to accept the offer on the triplex of $86,000 during the conservatorship, so that may have happened. All the rest was uncollectible and lost. Galta Trust, holding assets set aside in 1992 that Carroll had sourced and managed with Carroll as a beneficiary. Riggs, the property improperly put into Anne McQueen's maiden name of E.A. Riggs. PRSL Trust, holding properties set aside in 1992 that Carroll was not actively involved in and reinvested with the Lewis children as beneficiary. UTTS, assets of United Truck and Trailer Business, largely equipment, mostly inoperable. The weeks after disappearance. Per Carroll's diary, on Wednesday, August 20th, Carroll got a call from the Pasco County Sheriff that Don's van had been found at a small private airport, Pilot Country Estates, and she could come get that, come get it that day. The Pasco officers said they were not interested in fingerprinting it. The office, where United Truck and the real estate investments business operated out of, was an office trailer on the United Truck property and supervised five or six office staff there. Normally, Carol spent little time there. In recent months, she had spent more because she was trying to get the records computerized, which Anne was resisting. Only Don and Anne had keys and the alarm code. The property was surrounded by a chain-link fence with a padlock on the gate. The keys were to the gate and to the office trailer door. Carol's diary has lengthy entries from the event-filled week after Don disappeared, i.e. 8.25-3.30. The full diary entries are at Exhibit 31. It is a bit confusing because some of the entries on the 28th and 29th refer back to the prior days that week. Here is the best I can piece together. Monday, August 18th. By noon, August 18th, 1997, Anne was frantically looking for Don, paging Kenny, and calling for Carol, almost yelling, where in the hell is your husband? Given Don's propensity to be unreachable for days, this seemed to make no sense. Tuesday, August 19th, 8, 1997. Carol filed the missing report. Carol filed the missing person report with the sheriff. Officers arrive at 3 p.m. to take down the information. Times on the form, Exhibit 29. Monday, August 25th, Carol notes having found $142,000 in purchases of properties, now worth about $250,000, that had been transferred into Anne's name, apparently starting in December of 1995. At this point, she appears to still be viewing this as something Don may have agreed to and worries that he probably will never get any paperwork showing that they were really his. As soon as Carol arrives at the office, Anne wanted her to call Don's children and the media and inform them he was missing. Previously, she had urged waiting another week, but having spoken to Donna and Gail earlier, she was concerned about being accused of not telling them and decided she would call them. Detective Lingo called asking if there was any news. Carol mentioned the van, thinking he already knew from the Pasco Sheriff, but he did not. She also mentioned there was a credit card receipt for flights to Costa Rica for August 31st. He asked to come out and examine it, which she readily agrees to. Tuesday, August 26th. Anne and the Lewises had met, appointed Donna as spokesperson, decided Anne should be conservator, and had hired Ross Peavy House, an attorney who advertised as an estate attorney, according to the diary entry at August 29th. Wednesday, August 27th. It is not clear which day Hillsborough County 
Detectives came to see the van. This is the best guess, nor does Carol recall if they examined the Easy Street property or took it examined it at the Easy Street property or took it somewhere. Sheriff Chronister said that Sheriff Chronister has said they always take it to their facility to examine, but he has been incorrect in so many of his statements, was not there at the time, and procedures could have changed. Thursday, August twenty eighth. Carol is being told by everyone that they think Anne is being that Anne was trying to separate her and Don, but Carol does not believe them. Says Anne has been her best friend for sixteen years, but then questioned, has she? So at this point, Carol still seems to be viewing the property in Anne's name, not as outright trying to steal them. Carol mentions that in the past, when Don stayed out all night, Anne was the one who reassured Carol that he was okay, but without revealing any details. Carol spent the day in the office quizzing Anne about the properties in her name and trying to figure out what Anne's story is. Anne was claiming Don wanted all this property put in her name so that, quote, she would never have to work again if anything happened to Don, unquote. While there all day, Carol observed that Anne and Madeline, one of the office staff, basically did nothing all day, and Anne, for some reason, had a string of her family members stopping by during the day. Anne denies that the properties were being put in her name had anything to do with Wendell. But when Wendell walks in, and while Anne was on the phone, Carol got to ask him questions. He claimed that Anne, Don, and he had gone over these documents, and that she had trust documents that would spell out how much was his. It was then obvious Anne had been lying, according to Carol. Anne hung up the phone with horror in her eyes and asked Wendell to leave, but did not dispute what he had said. Carol asked Anne for a set of keys to the front gate and office and the alarm code. Anne claimed she was suddenly sick with a headache and had to go home and rest. Since she had the keys, everyone had to leave then at 4 p.m. so she could lock up. She said she would make keys that night and meet Carol at 9 a.m. the next day to give them to her. Carol's father, Vern, drove by at 5 p.m. and saw Madeline and Anne's son, he thinks, Jesse McQueen, carrying boxes of files out of the office. They stopped when they saw him and drove back to Anne's house. Vern followed them. Anne called, Carol called Anne to ask what she had removed, and Anne's response was that she quit, and she would come in at 9 a.m. to turn in her keys. Friday, August 29th, Carol went to the office three hours before 9 a.m. to observe from across the street in anticipation of Anne arriving at 9 a.m. to turn in her keys, but concerned that Anne might arrive early and remove more files. Anne had claimed there was no power of attorney, and she only and she only had Carol's 1992 power of attorney to Don, but not the reciprocal one Don issued to Carol. Carol remembered that when Don started going to Costa Rica in 1996, they had executed new revised ones and had searched until she found the 1196 original will and power of attorney. Paul Newman from Costa Rica Triplex calls to ask when Don would be arriving Sunday so he could pick him up at the airport. Carol informs him Don is missing. 9.15. Donna arrives to inform Carol that Anne does not want to give Carol the keys, and Donna wants Carol to come with them to their attorney's office to appoint a conservator. Carol told her that Carol was not comfortable speaking to their attorney without being represented and would meet with them once she had counsel. Carol called Vern and told him to get the guys in a truck and come to the office. Carol drives home to get her power of attorney, anticipating trouble. They cut the gate lock, break into the trailer, and cannot turn off the alarm with the phony code Anne had given her. 
The sheriff arrives, and Carolyn Byrne explain it is her right pursuant to the power of attorney, and the deputies left. Byrne and helpers loaded as many file cabinets as they could into the two pickup trucks. During this time, Anne arrived with her attorney and insists there's a box with her personal records she wants. Carol tells her the trucks are loaded, they are not going to unload them to find her box, but when she unloads it, she will set it aside for her. Anne is insistent, but Carol refuses, and Anne's attorney advises her to leave gracefully. Donna and her husband and Wendell all show up trying to slow them down, but Carol's people just kept packing and left early in the afternoon. Fern then suggested just moving the entire trailer to Easy Street, which they did mid-afternoon. That night, Carol started going through the boxes. She found the box containing Anne's personal records. Suspicious by what suspicious about why Anne was so concerned about it, she went through it. Hidden between the pages, Carol found the 1992 will and power of attorney, naming Carol as sole beneficiary of the original 1988 Galta Trust that at the time had his daughters as receiving the remainder of the estate if both Don and Carol died. This was later changed to eliminate the doctors after they sided with Gladys in the 1996 lawsuit and the most recent original of the PRSL Trust. Separately, Carol found a pile, two inches thick, of tax certificates, held mostly in Anne's name and some in Gail's name. Meanwhile, Donna filed for an emergency petition to seek an order for injunctive relief to try and give Anne control of the assets in both trusts without notifying Carol, telling the judge they did not know Carol, telling the judge they did not know where Carol was or lived. Judge Alvarez granted the order at 3 p.m. Saturday, August 30th, 8.30 a.m., Carol is served with the order, stamped 3 p.m. Friday, which was after Carol had removed the files in the trailer, so she was not in violation. Monday is a holiday, Labor Day. Carol's note, my father later referred to this as my final, finest hour. The diary and the objection to recommendation of Master from May 11, 1998, Exhibit 17, say that after Carol moved the office trailer and went through the documents, she found there was $509,000 in properties, mortgages, and tax certificates that Anne had purchased in one or the other of her names, Anne McQueen, Annie McQueen, Elizabeth McQueen, E.A. McQueen, E.A. Riggs. This was more than Carol had identified back in May, and for, and for months had been trying to get Anne to sign back over to Don, but she had been delaying. Of that amount, 425000 was since... Of that amount, 425000 was since May of 1996, when Don started spending one week per month in Costa Rica. Notably, the last item put in Anne's name with Don's funds, a tax certificate, was on the day Don disappeared, for $3,431.31. The objection document says there were exhibits A through V documenting this. Anne also cashed checks for $17,000 and modified the beneficiary designations of a life insurance policy. She had made herself the owner of Don for more than $1,250,000. Exhibit 17, Objection, ANSI Life Insurance section of this narrative. A hundred volunteers searched the area around the airport where Don's van was found. Tuesday, September 2, Carol hired one of her tenants, Mildred Beamer, who worked with attorneys Deborah Boger and Jim Freeman, to represent her and filed a motion for relief from injunction and got a hearing to 
reviews set for 9-9. In early 1998, when Carol complained to Deborah's boss, Freeman, about Deborah, in early 1998, when Carol complained to Deborah's boss, Freeman, not about Deborah, but about what the firm was not doing that Carol felt they should, Freeman filed for the firm to withdraw. On March 2, 1998, Carol hired Robert Eddy, and when it became transactional instead of litigious, his then-associate, Craig Rothbard, took over. Craig has been Carol's real estate attorney ever since. At the September 9th hearing, Ann produced, for the first time, and to Carol's surprise, Don's application for a restraining order from August 12th of 1997 that Ann claims Don gave her in an envelope, telling her to give it to the sheriff if anything happened to him. See defendants. Clearly, this was done to negatively impact the judge's perception of Carol. The outcome of the September 9, 1997 hearing was an agreed-upon order for appointment of co-conservators dated September 16, 1997, Exhibit 42, under which Carol would manage the properties but have to get Stolle's approval for many expenses. In the following year, there was a massive amount of trying to sort through the horrible mess that Anne left in the following year, there was a massive amount of trying to sort through the horrible mess that Anne had left with her paper records to identify what properties there were, whose name they were in, whether they belonged to the estate at all, paying taxes she had failed to pay, obtaining insurance on the properties. Carol fired all of the office staff, and her mother came to work for her in January of 1998 to help sort through this. Meantime, there were numerous attorneys involved, representing the various parties, spending time, allegedly at least, reviewing reports and documents, sending letters, having calls with clients, depleting the estate by incessantly submitting legal bills for the estate to pay. Meantime, another example of what we believe to be Anne's dishonesty per diary entry December 13th of 1999, Wendell Williams held a property in the name of his daughter, Wendy Williams, that had a mortgage owed to the conservatorship of $26,517. Ann collected the payoff from Wendy personally without informing the conservatorship of February 17, 1998. So the conservators initiated a foreclosure for nonpayment. On September 1, 1998, Ann issues a satisfaction of mortgage to Wendy without reporting that to the conservatorship. At that time, Anne was working with Wendell and sharing an office with Wendy. The foreclosure case is dismissed on August 25, 1999, and Carol is charged $750 for wrongfully bringing it by Judge Harlan, even though the judge found Anne to be at fault. Anne continued to delay and ignore court orders through 2002, and we have not found records of if or when she finally complied. Note from Rothbard said in 2002 she still had not signed the trust agreement created to satisfy the amended beneficiary designations in the life insurance policy. Finally, after all of this was sorted out and agreed to, on August 28, 1998, all of the parties entered into a stipulation under which it was agreed what properties belonged in the PRSL trust, six being added per paragraph 14 of the stipulation, that Carol Lewis agrees that the following property should be distributed to the PSRL Trust, as it was the intent of Donald Lewis for those assets to be part of the PSRL Trust, to wit, the four parcels representing the, quote, farm on Highway 92, 6038 East Broadway, and the Spring Lane property. And the Lewis's daughters got to manage the properties in that trust. 
value of the trust at that time was, as best we can determine, about $1 million plus whatever value was in those six added properties. The $1.25 million life insurance policy, when it paid off 2002 after Don declared dead, would follow the latest beneficiary provision. $400,000 to the daughters collectively, $250,000 to Carol, $200,000 to Anne, $400,000 to pay off potential claimants, from an email 3-16-2004 between Howard, Carol, and Barbara, it appears these claims were unsecured interest-only loans made by these three individuals that Don and Carol used to invest in properties and make higher returns, so they were very happy to pay the 12 to 18 percent. It appears that Carol was able to resolve these at some discount by giving them properties so they did not have to wait for the life insurance. Elsewhere, there's reference to Dawson only being 75000 and 25000 left to Tiffany Lewis. The latter shows up on final accounting of the policy payoff. Gladys, $200,000. Roy Dawson, $100,000. Tommy Baker, $100,000. Balance to Wildlife on Easy Street, the former name of Big Cat, on Big Cat Rescue, because the claims above had been resolved. Wildlife on Easy Street received $390,000. Carol got to manage the rest of the properties. The Galta account was to include the Costa Rica account and remain under the conservatorship. The Don Lewis account was to include the Don Lewis assets, United Truck and Trailer assets, and the McQueen misappropriated assets that Carol was trying to get back from Ann. Carol had to provide reporting to include, Carol had to still provide reporting, including to Stolly. Wildlife on Easy Street to get up to $125,000 a year from the Don Lewis account. The reason the Lewises wanted to limit this is because the will only said assets are distributed per the trust. Assets not in the trust could be argued passing intestate if any were left at the end of five years if Don did not return. But the combinations of allowed payments out of the Don Lewis account, massive legal fees, paying unpaid taxes, abandoning properties with environmental issues that Stolle did not want to risk dealing with, although Carol had previously successfully dealt with them, resulted in depleting these assets over the five years, leaving nothing in the estate in 2002, per the letter from Rothbard. Carol and daughters needed approval for transactions over 125000 Carol was to, see, to receive $50,000 per year from the Don Lewis account, and $50,000 per year from the Guardian Angel Land Trust account. Any Costa Rica assets sold, any Costa Rica assets sold but were to be put in a separate account and distributed on the declaration of death per Costa Rica will, which left all of the Costa Rica assets to Carol, exhibits 43 and 44. Removal of the properties contained in count one of the petition for removal of assets, order at exhibit 45, but need to find out what count one properties are. It took four more years of litigation for Carol to finally get Anne to turn over the assets pursuant to a court order. Anne did everything possible to fight it, including ignoring court orders like the order granting motion for turnover of disputed property on December 22, 2020, Exhibit 35. I'm not sure that that was 2020. I think that's a typo. I think that would have been... 02 is what he meant there because it was at the end. I'm just going to put in parentheses because I don't know for sure. I'll have to go back and look at that. The certificate of death, Exhibit 34, says the judge signed the order in November of 2002. 
the date of the month is obscured by Judge Sexton's signature. It was registered on December 10, 2002, and the copy Carol has is stamped January 28, 2003. Carol has no paperwork or recollection of submitting a filing to have him declared dead, and on the certificate it indicates the informant as Donna Pettis, so it appears Donna filed to have him declared dead, not Carol, as claimed in the series. Carol does recall the daughters anxious to have this happen so they could get the life insurance proceeds, and this was after 9-11 when the sanctuary was struggling financially, so Carol would have had an incentive to want to complete the process as well. Assets to the Lewis family and Anne. Anne, life insurance, $209,000, was in interest. Gladys, 1990 divorce, $1 million in property, <clears throat> plus Mercedes, Chrysler, jewelry, 18,000 silver, 20,000 gold, 20,000 cash. Don told Carol that Donna lost all of it in the stock market. Most likely, the only way she would lose it would be day trading or options. If that had been invested in the S&P 500, it would be worth $10 million today. 1996 divorce settlement of $50,000. <clears> Repayment of her $200,000 loan to Don and Carol. While provided for in the life insurance policy, Carol settled with Gladys separately before the policy paid off, so the life insurance funds went to Wildlife on Easy Street as a residual beneficiary. Don's daughters collectively. Life insurance, 416000 16000 was in interest. PRSL Land Trust Properties. The daughters received control over the management of this trust in the August 28, 1998 stipulation agreement. That agreement let them gift money from it to themselves. There is a QuickBooks statement as of October 8, 2002 that has been written at the top of the PRSL final accounting. Properties would be listed in QuickBooks at the purchase price. The nature of the business was purchasing distressed properties at below value. Through 1997, the purchase price and tax assessed values were tracked on a spreadsheet. Of the five properties listed, we found two with tax assessed values on the 1997 sheet. It appears that the daughters had drawn out $466,000 during the year. years. Without reviewing the full calculation here, Exhibit 32, we add back the draw and the tax assessed value from 1997 on the two that we have, and we get a very conservative valuation of $1.1 million. If that had been invested conservatively in a S&P 500 index fund, it would be, over, it would be worth over $3.5 million today. A spreadsheet showing what Carol ended with at that time using tax assessed values shows Carol's assets at that time to be $4.2 million, so the daughters ended up with at least 20%, not the 10% claimed in the series. But the percentage is not that meaningful, other than to show how they misrepresented it. Two different sheets from 1996 and 1998 show PRSL at $900,001 The real point is that contrary to what they say in the series, the assets in the PRSL Trust were selected back in 1992 based on who had been responsible for the purchases, i.e., ones Carol was not involved in, not, quote, bad, unquote, properties selected for that reason by Carol. They did have significant value. They only got that value because Carol chose not to follow Don's instructions to cut them out after their betrayal. So there was no issue of Carol cheating them. They got the properties Don originally had designated for them, i.e., they got what they were entitled to under his original wishes, and more than they were entitled to, which was zero under his later wishes. 
A compelling piece of evidence of his intention to disown them was his removal of them as residual beneficiaries in the Galta Trust in 1996 after the lawsuit. Plausible Explanations of Don's Disappearance Plausible Explanations of Don's Disappearance We feel there are two plausible explanations. Although he had assets in Costa Rica that he may have viewed as worth $1 million, but only about $200,000 turned out to be collectible, it is not plausible that he would simply decide to disappear, leaving behind the bulk of his assets. So the two possibilities are foul play or a plane accident. Foul play. Don had little regard for the law and operated on the edge. In Costa Rica, he was dealing with the Helicopter Brothers, which Attorney Peterson told Carol was the local mafia. Here, he got into some kind of deal where we think he was trying to basically cheat the owners of a prominent business who were rumored to have mob connections, but it's not something we would want to say publicly. A few of the people Carol can name who were in Don's circle, Carol knows either had criminal records or likely did. Kenny Farr said the last time he saw Don, presumably the Friday before Don disappeared, Don talked about some transaction that would be the best he had ever done if he pulled it off. We don't know if that was related to the shipment going to Costa Rica or something else, and we don't know who he was doing it with. In Carol's letter to detectives on August 23rd of 1999, she says that a few days before his disappearance, Don, quote, giggled and made the following statement to two of our workers, quote, this will be the slickest thing I have ever done, unquote. Apparently, a second worker, other than Kenny, heard this, Exhibit 29. It could be that whatever this deal was, or in Don's case, possibly scheme, was with people who had an incentive to make Don disappear. Maybe he was scamming the wrong people. Fritz makes a couple of statements that suggest he knows or thinks more than he is saying. Examples, episode 3 at the 24 minute 18 mark, after saying that it was his understanding that Don had gone to evaluate a new plane for sale, he said, quote, I was told that he was pushed out of a plane, out of the door, 50 feet over the gulf, way out, unquote. Later, at 26 minutes and 7 seconds, Fritz says, quote, Somebody, sometime, someplace, somewhere, somehow, wanted to be rid of Don Lewis, and apparently they got their way. My understanding was that he was killed, unquote. Eric prompts, quote, bye, unquote, and Fritz shakes his head and says, quote, we won't go there, unquote. Scene cuts to a snarling jaguar, showing his claws up close. It is not clear if he was just being coy, or if he actually knows something, but if nothing else, it would be interesting to depose him and find out. Subsequently, Fritz has been on the Nancy Grace TV show and talked to others with more details about it being a murder for hire using a plane to strangle Don and throw him out of an airplane and making statements that seem to be provably false about his relationship with Don. He also defended Anne McQueen as trustworthy in interviews. Flying accidents. Detailing the history of Don's plane crashes has been another challenge, using info from a few sources, some of which a bit inconsistent. As best we can determine, he got a student's license in 1985, but never got the instructor's sign-off to fly solo. That, of course, did not stop Don. Here is a summary Carol put together. See Exhibit 46 for detail. 1985-01-22, Don gets his medical for his student pilot training. 1985-08-30, Don crashes in the panhandle in power lines trying to evade Hurricane Elena. 1986-08-27, Don crashed six miles northwest of Cedar Key 
and FAA citation results. Carroll thought this was caused by him running out of gas, but the report shows fuel in the tank and nothing wrong with the plane. One interesting fact on this crash is that in the FAA report, the plane is listed as owned by a law firm and doing business as Don Lewis. Just an example of how confusing Don's records can be and how there might not be records of a flight that day he disappeared. 1986-09-27, FAA citation cites an incident date of 1986-09-23, so that may have been the crash at the Zephyr Hills Airport where he forgets to put down the landing gear. 1987-05-12, same FAA document states their final action suspending Don's license. In the citation, in it, the citations include that Don was flying solo without endorsement by his instructor to have ever been able to do so. There are also diary notes about getting caught doing touch and goes at the closed airport for repair at the closed for repairs airport. There are also diary notes about getting caught doing touch and goes at the closed for repairs Vandenberg Airport. They were closed because they were working on the runway. Because he did not have a license, he could only take off and land from the airports that were unmonitored, like Pilot Country Estates, and had to fly under 200 feet where the radar would not detect his transponder. Another diary entry has somewhat different order and description. His first crash was on an approach to Cedar Key Airport, where he crashed into the water and had to be saved by boaters who came to his aid. The second time, he forgets to put the wheels down and bellies into Zephyr Hills Airport in a hot in a hot rod little plane he was so proud to own. The third time, I think, he was, the third time, I think, was during Hurricane Helena on September 22nd, 1988. He was trying to outrun the storm, but was flying so low he got tangled in power lines. This crash left him in intensive care for weeks. He was never quite right after that. And that was from my diary entry of the same date, which was Exhibit 31. Carol actually thought he did have a license at one point, but she took lessons to get her license so she could fly instead of him and keep him from more accidents. When flying with him, she had observed him simply fall asleep at the controls. In normal flying at 1,500 feet, there would be time to recover. At 200 feet, at the 200 feet he flew at to avoid detection, there was not. The Cedar Key incident she originally thought was caused by running out of gas may have been caused by falling asleep. The sleep issue is part of the reason she tried to forcefully keep him from flying alone. Diary entries indicate him promising her not to do so, but then announcing plans to do so in violation of that promise. Carol thinks Don may have already sent one ultralight to Costa Rica in a prior shipment. He was looking to buy another ultralight. So one way that the transaction might have taken place is to have the owner fly it to the pilot country estate's landing field and then let Don test fly it. If Don decided to buy it, he would make sense for Don to fly the seller back to whatever part of the state he came from, then fly the plane back to Pilot Country Estates. He might have paid cash for it, flown it out over the Gulf, and gone down. Don would always try to spend most of the flight over water where there was less turbulence. On a trip prior to that, when Carol was with them, they had almost run out of gas coming back over the Gulf. The seller would likely hear about his disappearance, assuming Don used his real name with the seller, but not, might not speak up for fear of some kind of liability for the plane going down, or in order to avoid revealing some aspect of the transaction that would create a problem for him. A lot of the experimental ultralights are built in someone's backyard and have no transponders and are not legal to fly if they don't pass rigid testing. 
Separately but related, a man from Texas called a few days after Don's disappearance to ask why Don had not delivered the cat he had promised to bring him. April 27, 1998, letter from Carol, from Carol's mother's two detectives, Exhibit 29, Carol's efforts to find Don. Missing in reward flyers, Carol printed up letter-sized flyers. She personally distributed hundreds of them herself, and on Saturday, 8.30, per her diary, about 100 volunteers showed up at the sanctuary to help distribute more. Searching around the airport, when the volunteers showed up on Saturday, August 30th, Jim Moore, a volunteer, suggested that while they had this many people, they searched the area around the small airport where Don's fan was found. They found a black shirt turned inside out like a glove was used at they found a black shirt turned inside out a glove like was used at the sanctuary covered in oil that Dewey Gallup who ran the airport said did not look like plain oil a brush a cut up 1996 license plate and a faded receipt from an auto salvage yard most disturbing they found what they thought looked like blood stain spatter on the pavement between the planes that were hangered two poles down from where Don's van was parked a deputy happened to be nearby on a DUI. He said he was occupied with that and someone else would have to come look. No one came. So Carol faxed the detectives. News media came out to cover the search. Reward. Carol wanted to be very public. Carol wanted to very publicly offer a reward on billboards and in the newspaper. Per the, the September 6, 1997 letter to Detectives Exhibit 29, the detectives discouraged Carol from doing that, saying it would interfere with their search. In the latter, she asks when she can. She does not recall them ever saying she could. In the meantime, she did advise in the hot sheet, whose owner, Fred Timby, offered to run it for free for a year and would be seen by the people who knew Don, but not be broadly public. She also made hundreds of 8.5 by 11 reward posters, Exhibit 29, and she and the volunteers taped them to their car windows and posted them around pilot country estates and anywhere else they could think of. Insurance company help. In the same September 6, 1997, she urged the detectives to let the insurance company add resources to help. As far as we know, they never got involved. Bounty hunter. Tim Bingston had for many years been a bounty hunter. He knew Don, and Carol thinks he may have been one of the sanctuary volunteers. He came to Carol and said this was his profession. He had a list of actions to take. Detective letter, October 21st through 25th, 1997, Exhibit 29. Letter said he had checked Costa Rica prisons, associate was checking Nicaragua. Carol offered him $100,000 to find Don alive or find information to convict Don's killer or asked him for an hourly rate if he found Don dead and it was determined it was by accident. Diary post 102597. Pay detectives to go to Costa Rica. Handwritten letter to Lingo, offering to pay for detectives to go to Costa Rica with a list of evidence located that mentions the September 18th, so probably late September. Attached will, power of attorney, and guardian angel land trust, Exhibit 29. Report alleged sighting, April 2nd, 1998, letter to detective, in which a waitress, Lisa Stoll, at Denny's told Carol she saw Don 11 days after his disappearance, but does not seem credible. Exhibit 29. News report, Body and Gulf. April 27, 1998. Letter to detective noting the body found in the Gulf. Exhibit 29. Went to Costa Rica, 1999. Letter to detectives, August 21, 1999. Exhibit 29. 
says part of the purpose to look for Don, but seems primarily about assets and animal issues. Rather late to be good evidence of looking for Don there. News report body, I-275 and 579, October 26, 2002, letter to detective, noting body found near former property at Highway 92, east of 579 at Old Darby Road, Exhibit 29. 2001, October 18th, Sheriff's Office says Michael Spitz, a.k.a. Mexican Mike, witnessed Danny shooting Don in the head and burying him at the farm, but Danny was in lockup at the time. And so this is clearly not finished, and so this was just Howie's draft that he was showing me, but this was kind of his way, Howie's way of trying to organize all of the diary entries that have taken like 500 entries before this, all wrapped up in this one. If you're enjoying my diary, please like, share, and subscribe. You can find other ways to connect to me over at bigcatrescue.org forward slash carol.baskin.